Just a quick note, we do have some intense conversations about mental health in this week's show. This is Taste for Tenacity, show number 33. Welcome to the show that answers the question that plagues students and professionals alike. What should I do with my life? Determine your greatness. Follow me through the pathway of more success. Each week, we interview entrepreneurs. Invest in things that you understand. Professionals. It's just believing in yourself and your abilities. And artists that have followed their pull. You can't be scared to push the envelope. This is what we need from Ben Trella and Otai Media. This is Taste for Tenacity. What is going on, everybody? My name is Ben Trella, and this is Taste for Tenacity. This week on the show, we hear from Stephen Kuhn. Uh, Stephen is a decorated U.S. Army combat veteran. He's now a speaker, author, and consultant that helps individuals improve their lives through the application of honesty, integrity, and transparency. Uh, Stephen focuses on amplifying your humble alpha in any domain uh, by investing in relational capital. Uh, Stephen's book and program are both called The Humble Alpha Leader and are set to be released in January. Stephen, welcome to the show. What an intro. Thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for being, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for giving me something to talk about. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm curious. You said you're in Hungary. Uh, are you a big like European sports fan at all? I used to be. Um, you know, I, I used to be on the management team of uh, one, of the, one of the most famous soccer players in the world. Huh. I've worked with other sports um, sports personalities as well. I was pretty well, you know, into that field for a while. But Formula One, that kind of stuff, yeah, yeah. So I was pretty mm-hmm. active. I was I was never the front line, but I worked with the management teams and coached them and helped them set up programs for the younger sports people, uh, the younger sports players, so they don't go array. You know, like huh. these young kids, they have a million dollar contract, they're eighteen years old. Next thing you know, they're running through the city doing stupid things and getting a bad name for themselves and hurting their career. So I sort of set yeah. up programs. Huh. Um, to help them um, find the way to prevent them from being a kid in a candy shop. Right. Awesome. Right. So let's uh, let's dive into it and sort of wind back the clock here. Uh, so let's say you're around age 18. You're wrapping up high school. If you finished high school, um, what did that point in your life look like? What were you thinking that you would want to do after high school or after your primary education? Well, fairly soon in my life, I knew that I had to leave as soon as I could. Hmm. Um, so I had the classic American nightmare, you know, so, um, you know, moved around a bunch, a couple fathers, a uh, couple abuse father, abusive stepfathers, um, you know, the, just that typical nightmare that you have. And I, I was, I had no self belief, no pride, no nothing. I was just, I was a total doofus. I tried everything, you know, I tried every, I tried every sport. I sucked at every sport. I mean, every, I was the guy who lost every game. Hmm. so it's like coon whatever you do don't do this and that's exactly what i would do and it was just like i would mess it up you know like yeah. well of course that makes sense you know <laughs> and uh i would mess it up every time so i knew that i had to get out of there uh, i didn't want to stay there i actually had a um i was graphics and photography student of the year believe it or not and i had a i had a um, partial scholarship as well i'm like nope i'm going in the army i'm leaving i'm not staying here because i knew even at that young age, although I was 240 pounds at the time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that young age, I knew I could never develop into anything that I wanted to do, that I knew I could be with everybody looking at me, and they knew who I was for the last 18 years, but I didn't know who I was. Hmm. Their projection onto me made me be who they thought I, I, I was, and that, that was just, I knew that when I was 19. Hmm. So I'm like, I'm out of here, man. So you oh. needed to kind of throw yourself into a new situation where those yeah. identities that were forced on you and that that person that you kind of became was sort of thrown out the window. Completely thrown out the window. I mean, it was completely thrown out the window. You got to remember, I failed third grade. I have a twin brother. Um, so from the third grade on up until 12th grade, we were in different grades. So mm-hmm. I was always the dumb one, right? And, uh, I, I, you know, just on top of that and then the other stuff and just a whole bunch of – never had a girlfriend, you know? Yeah. Um, just that whole – the whole world that just comes tumbling down. Um, and I knew that when I, when I joined the army, it'll be so tough. It'll be such a change that I have to completely let go of who I am and start new. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. So now you're, you're, you were 19 when you went into the army. Right. That's so why, cause I failed third grade. So yeah, gotcha. I graduated when I was 19. Okay. So now you're 19 years old. You're thrown into this whole new world. Uh, what was it like trying to figure out who you were as a person? Well, you know, first I went there cocky as hell, of course, you know, because that's what people who feel bad about themselves do. They're very cocky. 
So when they have very low self-pride, self-belief, they're very cocky to try to cover it up. It's like that balance that we try to find. When, the, when you don't have balance in life, your ego takes over hmm. to try to fill the void. And, um, you know, I showed up there, long hair. I had the mullet. It was the 80s, you know, in 1986. So the, the mullet was hanging down the back there. It was a <laughs> disco mullet. It wasn't, you know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I know. It was horrible. And um, I showed up and the, and the drill sergeant said, um, didn't you know you were coming to boot camp, son? You know, and I said, no, I was drafted. That was my first um, meeting with the, the slap to the side of the head. Uh, so mm. I learned real quick not, not to be a smart, smart ass. Yeah. But I also realized this, as soon as I sat down and that razor touched my head and started shaving my hair off, um, I was like, yeah, this is the new me. I'm done. I am done being that idiot. Mm. And I'll tell you, it, uh, it didn't take long. I was, you know, I'd run at the front of the formation because I was like one of the slowest in the beginning. I'd run at the front of the formation. I'd be vomiting on myself, but I knew if I fell back and no one saw me, I'd just stop running. Yeah. So I forced myself to run to the front. I forced myself to, to do push and, and be harder than anything I could ever imagine. I literally vomiting and shaking and passing out sometimes because mm -hmm. I just wouldn't give up. And I said, I know I can be that person that is someone amazing. So you forced yourself into a situation of discomfort so that you could become that person that you knew was sort of lurking inside. Right. right. And I tell you, whatever they gave me, it was never enough. I mean, I, I the, the one key point that broke, um, let's say the final, um, the fi I don't want to say the final, but one of the final, um, say, strings to my past was we went to an obstacle course. And on the obstacle course, you have to climb walls, ropes, down, under, you know, all that stuff. And there was a wall that you come to that's facing you, leaning at you about 15 degrees, about seven or eight feet high with no rope. And I'm like, well, how the hell are you supposed to get over this thing? Everyone else is getting over it. I couldn't get over it to save my life. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm thinking I'm stupid or like I'm not fit enough or whatever. And the drill sergeant just threw me in the mud and put his boot in the back of my, my, my neck and just started calling me every name in the book. I mean, like, like nasty shit. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I just pushed his foot aside, jumped up, and I literally, without an effort, jumped over that wall. And I landed on the other side. It was like angels came. I was like, oh. <laughs> and I, suddenly I was like, holy shit, it was me the whole time. I can't believe it was my, it was me. How yeah. can this be? My whole life, it was me. And my whole life up to that point, every football game, every, every baseball game, every wrestling match, every, every basketball game that I really royally screwed up flashed before my eyes as if that was only me. That was, mm -hmm. it's my mind. That was it. Boom. From that point on, I knew I could do anything I wanted. Huh. So 19 now. years old, man. 19 mm -hmm. years old. 19 years old game totally changes mm -hmm. uh, you spent how long did you serve how long were you active in the military i spent eight years in the military after six years i went to desert storm fought in iraq eighth cav i was awarded the bronze star which is really weird for the for the for desert storm it, not many of those were awarded hmm. um had some really you know life-changing experiences there as well and one of them was to be humble um the, the most humble moment in my life was when I uh, was after the ceasefire, the ground war with the Tawakana and Republican guards, uh, the Tawakana Medina Republican guards outside of Basra uh, with the Iraqi army, uh, we had a, a ceasefire and we had to set up a checkpoint. And we were supposed to support the Shiites when they did an uprising against Saddam Hussein because our government said, if you do, we will help you. Well, they started the uprising. We didn't help them. Um, and so everyone got slaughtered. The city got burned down. And so we had a checkpoint there and we were taking care of prisoners of war and enemy combatants and the wounded as much as we could, but we could not keep or care for anyone who was not an enemy combatant. Hmm. And that my friend is the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. When you see hundreds of people wounded, women and children, you can't help. But there was one girl I was sitting there at the checkpoint and I see this little pink dot coming towards me and it's, it's a little girl walking with her hands out like she's flying and there's a, there's a woman beside her and as I get closer I could see that she was burnt from the head down or from the neck down and her clothes were burnt into her skin and this pink dress was covering her so they must have found it somewhere yeah and so she came to me uh you know I sent her to the medics they bandaged her up and as she was coming out I waved her over and I got on my knee and I'm like you know I I have to face this girl. Like I have to face this, what we're doing here. This is a part of what, whether I did it or not myself is not the point. We're here. This is what we're doing. I have to face that moment, you know? And I had to face her where she was and pick her up where she was. And so I got down on my knee and went, went, went eye to eye with her. And I pulled out the only thing I had, and that was butterscotch candy. Hmm. 
and I opened that butterscotch, I pulled the butterscotch candy out and I gave it to her and she smiled. She, this little girl, oof, every time I talk about it, it's like, wow. This little girl who lost everything, burnt from head to toe, smiles for a piece of candy. And, you know, I feel like in that moment, I gave her a view past what was in front of her. Uh, and for me too, like, it's not going to end here. There's more, you know, compassion is really here in this world. Yeah. Don't lose that thought. I feel like that's what happened in that moment for both of us, you know. Yeah, you saw and each anyway, other's humanity. Yeah, so to this day, I, I, oh, I just want to meet her so bad, you know. She must be like 35 or 38. Something like that, you know? wow. Yeah. yeah. So. So, so you spent eight years uh, six years over, over that time period. Uh, and then let's, let's say fast forward to the end of that eight years. Did you ever serve in like a, a leadership role or oh, yeah. where did sort of your, your leadership insights in particular come from? Well, for me, le- leadership begins with yourself. And I think when you want, once you're disciplined and you do the things that, that you expect others to do, then le- leadership is almost natural. There's, that's the problem with a lot of leaders is they learn on the outside and don't do anything on the inside. That, that, that's what our program, The Humble Alpha Leader, is all about, is that it begins on the inside. And I think that um, if I look back at the military, a, a lot of that is internal. You know, you take care of yourself first. You make your bed every single day, no matter what. You know, if it's Saturday, it doesn't matter. Your wall locker looks good. Your, you know, your, all of your stuff on your desk is dressed right dress. All these things are all, um, you know, taken care of before you even step out of the room, before you're done. You get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you do PT, personal training, physical training, and you go eat chow, you come back, you clean your rooms. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And that gives you the self, um, that gives you belief in others. They go, well, he's doing it, so I can do it. And that's just a little, the small part of it. Once you get into a corporate world, which I did get into, and once you get into other leadership roles, um, that becomes um, less viewable because people can't see you at home. They don't see what you do at home. But here's the thing. When you're a leader, you're never off. So when you're a leader and you go to a, a company party and you act like an idiot, well, you're not a leader anymore. And people see that and they'll never forget it. No matter how you meant it or what you expect, leaders are leaders are leaders. I had a, I had a first sergeant tell me one time, I was at a wedding and it was all officers, like 200 officers. And I was mm-hmm. the only non-officer there, the only one invited. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, the first sergeant, who was like the top guy, he said, true leaders never, ever take their uniforms off. You always stay in uniform because every single officer had their shirt open, tie out, suspenders on, you know, drunk and everything. And him and I, as the only NCOs there, were still strapped and looking straight. He goes, that's the difference. Hmm. It just stuck with me all these years later. That was 1987. Wow. Wow. So now let's say you're you're winding down your time with the Army. Uh, What was going through your mind? Did you have something you wanted to work on next or were you sort of just trying to plot and figure out okay what do i want well i had a really hard time after the war uh, i came back to gelnhausen where i was stationed in germany they shut it down then i got sent to berlin brigade um in berlin germany and i you know i loved that place and they shut that down too and so they sent me to schweinfurt and i was like i'm done i'm done with this and schweinfurt they were shutting down as, as well so i was like uh, no i'm not going to do this so i i requested an early out which i got um, at the time, they were letting people go because they were shrinking the army. Okay. And uh, I, I just I knew I was going to stay in Europe. I didn't know what I was going to do or anything. I just knew I'm staying in Europe because I didn't want to go home with my tail between my legs and go back to where I was. I was like, I'm I'm just starting here, man. Like I'm I'm just there's so many things I want to see. You got to realize those eight years I spent in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I drove weekends to Denmark, to Spain, to Portugal, Austria, Switzerland. Yeah. I had like girlfriends all over Germany and Europe, and I mean, it was it was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Not at the same time, obviously, well, maybe one or two, but, <laughs> you know, but different countries, you know, and uh, you got to remember too, most of the time when I was there, the wall was still up. So it was still East West. Mm-hmm. So it was a very exciting time in history to be living in Europe. And when I got out, it was 1993, just after the wall came down. So it was exciting to drive through the Autobahn uh, from Germany to Frankfurt or whatever, and see the Russian soldiers still there. I mean, it was, it was amazing. So like, I'm staying here. This is history. Yeah, so I just decided to stay. I went back to Berlin and had absolutely nothing to do. Like, you know, my German wasn't so good. Um, yeah. So I decided to get a job in a nightclub, which I had already started before I got out. And uh, it, was a ne- it was a techno club. So it was one of the famous underground techno clubs in Berlin. Um, yeah. Very famous, actually. Madonna was there. Prince was there. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, it was underground. It was, it was illegal, but it okay. was tolerated. And within a couple of weeks, we were making like, I think it was like 150,000 a weekend. It was ridiculous. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, it wasn't my money. All of, of course, it was everybody's money. We had mm-hmm. we had staff of like a hundred people there. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, because it was huge. It was like an underground bunker partly, and there was like this huge kitchen with these vats where the DJ would sit into the vats. It was crazy. That's nuts. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was the original like DJ Westbam, um, um, Doctor Mota. Um, um, DJ Tomek, all these guys that are famous these days, they were our house DJs. So that's how I got into the club scene in Berlin. And then I stepped out of that, got into security. And that's where I I had my real sort of challenge in life when I got to Berlin and had to figure out what I was going to do for real. Yeah. So now you're, you're in Berlin, you're at nightclub number one. Uh, Were you just a bouncer at that point? Oh, no, no. I was running the whole thing. I was. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, we had seven bars. Oh, wow. <laughs> in this like multi-level underground, whatever. I just went around and collected money. That's went upstairs, crazy. put it in the cash box. Went around and collected money. Went upstairs, put it in the cash box. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. None of that stuff. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I just collected the money and brought it upstairs under the night, counted it all, took my share and went home. So now you're running the show. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, which at an underground bunker nightclub sounds just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, you know, we had, you know, it was, it was not... Uh, for the for the faint-hearted, put it that way. Hmm. Ecstasy was everywhere. You know, everyone was high on something. You know, it's it's the it's the old raves. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, 1992, 93 raves where hmm. people are half naked and the girls are just wearing bras, if that. Hmm. And it's just dark. There's no lights at all. It's and it's just, <laughs> this whole music and lasers <laughs> and shit. It's and three thousand people on the dance floor. I mean, that's oh, how man. big it was. It was just crazy. That's massive. Yeah, and we only had like we only had like two kinds of beers, plastic cups, and shooters in plastic cups. That was all we had, and I just could not get around to the bars quick enough to collect the money. Hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. So now you're you're working at this nightclub, and you said next you got into security. Yeah. So what was the change? What did what made you want to change into something new, and why security in particular? Well, we got shut down because the Love Parade, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Love Parade. It's the Rave Parade uh, in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. It started back with Dr. Motta. Okay. And the first one was like 300 people and they were doing a rave, a rave parade down the street in Berlin. Well, it okay. ended up being a million people would come to Berlin every year for this Love Parade. Wow. The largest open air concert sort of thing that travels through a city in any city in the world. Wow. And uh, it landed at, it ended at our club. Hmm. Well, that was too much for the city to sort of cover up because we were illegal. And so they shut us down because all the neighbors were upset and stuff. So they shut us down. And I I ended up getting a security job at the airport and at the Hard Rock Cafe as a doorman. I started selling insurance too. So I had three jobs at the same time. And I never addressed my PTSD, my combat PTSD. I never addressed the the depression that I had. I never addressed the feelings of loss, the feelings of uh, survival guilt. You know, all the, I never addressed it. And um, what happened was people would trigger me constantly at the door. And I was fighting every single day, like hmm. fist fighting every single day. Gotcha. And I got to be really well known, unfortunately, uh, or notorious, I guess you could say, for being the guy that no one could mess with. So I'd have everybody coming to me to mess with me. Every Tom, Dick and Harry or hmm. Hans, Uwe and, you know, whatever <laughs> German names they are, uh, would come and just try to mess with me. You know, and just, mm-hmm. oh, you're the big guy, you know. And I was always the one that was trying to diffuse, but I would snap, you know. Yeah. And one time I snapped, and I don't know what happened. I woke up naked in a park. Wow. And it's okay in Germany because you can be naked anywhere. It's not a big deal, strange as it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I grabbed a, uh, borrowed a towel from someone beside me and gave him my address and said, I'll give it back to him, whatever. And took a bus home, told him I didn't have any money or nothing, and I'm naked, I need to get home. And they let me on. And uh, for three or what was it, two or three weeks, I had no idea where I was, who I was, what I was doing, nothing. I was completely gone, hmm. like a reboot almost. Yeah. And then I started over. So and that's when I went into business for myself um, again <laughs> and started uh, my own cocktail bar, then another, then another, then a nightclub. Then I got into the health club industry um, and it just exploded from there. So that, that was all within four years, by the way. What I wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was pretty action-packed to say Yeah, massive. Um, massive. Now, you said you, you hadn't really addressed the depression you were dealing with and, and sort of the, the fallout from spending eight years away. How did you start to sort of break down those feelings and, and really start to move past them after that four-year hiatus almost? Right. Well, um, 
I, I guess the first time I really had to face it was when I had the when I you know in the the when I woke up naked in the park. Um, but I didn't. I sort of pushed it away, and I just said, "Okay, I need to go to a different place where I'm not triggered." Hmm. So I started doing that, and that's why I got my own place. Um, but I think it really happened uh, for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, in 2002 when I lost everything. So at the time I was married, um, and within a week I lost my wife. To, she left me because I was traveling back to Chicago and Spain and over where you know, I was working for the for a uh, big big corporation in, in London. And um, my money, my job, uh, lost everything. Uh, and I sat there and like, I, you know, here we go again. You know, what mm-hmm. the hell? What's going on? You know, it's, it's, I got to figure something out. So I um, wrote a book and that book uh, came out. I wrote it in two weeks, came out two weeks later. It was a two weeks after that was a bestseller hmm. in Germany. Uh, and it was about a guy, me and the feelings of um, shame and guilt and fear uh, going into the Gulf war during the Gulf war after the Gulf war and how I didn't deal with anything and how it was affecting my life. Hmm. And it, it went nuts over here. It really went nuts over here. To this day, it's a bestseller. Wow. And uh, the Americans wouldn't pick it up because it came out the day the war started in 2003, hmm. where everyone was pro, pro-war. Yeah. Uh, and this book was anti-war, pro-America, um, American values. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that, that helped me a lot. That was my first step. I remember going on TV, and this is where HIT was born, Honesty, Integrity, Transparency. I went on TV the day after the war started, the day after my books, my book came out, and I was on TV live, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 million people live on German TV with the American ambassador, the British ambassador, Sir Peter Ustinov, all these famous people, and everyone's looking at me. Yeah. Right? Because I'm the only war guy there, a guy, a combat veteran there who speaks German, who's an American. Mm-hmm. And everyone looked at me, and they're like, Mr. Kuhn, are you against this war? Like, they wanted to hear it from an American. Mm-hmm. And my whole, my head's like, okay. Am I, what, what should I say? Should I say what I think they want to hear? Should I protect my heritage? You know? And I said, no, stop. I have to be 100% honest with everyone around me or I can't expect honesty from them. This is, this is the beginning of the rest of my life. And so I, boom, I am absolutely against this war. You know? And it was like, wow. And everyone's like, oh, an American said it. You know? <laughs> it was yeah. like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And that set me onto a tra- trajectory of one year long um, uh, TV interviews, uh, live book readings all over the country, Switzerland, Austria, any German-speaking country. Uh, and by that time, because I was reading, so I was speaking almost perfect German, and I still do to this day. So, I mean, my company's still in Germany, my my own company yeah. um, registration, but I live in Hungary most of the time. Okay. And uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it changed my life forever, and it, it forced me to tell my story for real. But yet... <laughs> It wasn't over, my friend. It's still, the <laughs> suffering still wasn't over. You'd think yeah. by the end of 2004, when I was done with doing all the TV and then all that kind of stuff, that I'd be okay, hmm. you know, because I went through all that. But it, yeah. it proved to be different. So so you really started just by airing it out, essentially, yeah. and, and yeah. telling all to an extent of what you were dealing with so that you could have that honest and open conversation when the time came. And I had to say it loud and clear to as many people as possible, like to the public. So I'd be forced to face it. Otherwise, why should I face it? Right. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask really hard questions on live TV and it was fantastic. Wow. Yeah. No, no better way to get to know yourself than yeah. in front of 20 to 30 million people. <laughs> and, and, but it was every day. It was like dah, dah, dah. every day, sometimes four or five times a day on, on different channels. It was crazy. Yeah. Huh. So now you mentioned, you mentioned hit in there. Yeah. Uh, could you start to number one unpack what it is, and then walk us through where it came from and how you kind of put those pieces together? Okay, so you know, honesty, integrity, transparency. Some call me the hitman. I have a, a podcast called The Hit Show, mm-hmm. and um, the definition is honesty is being true to who you are and how you live. Transparency is communicating your honesty for anyone to observe, and integrity is the result of your ongoing reputation, which is formed through honesty and transparency. So, you know, when you're, when you're living by hit, you have the clarity of who you are and exactly what you want in life. You also live an incredibly happy life where everyone seems to help you every step of the way because you're always elevating them. You're always, like you, you said before in the beginning, investing in relational capital. And of course, you naturally attract others who live by hit, making life literally super easy and enjoyable. And, you know, when you operate under hit, you get an authentic connection, significance, and true happiness. And some people might say, I don't need significance. Well, 
significance is one of the six essential human needs. And whether or not you know you need it, you need it. So it turns a scarcity mindset into abundant mindset. And it, it's, it's, it's being able to give a value in that very moment. Now, when someone asks me, what does it mean? Like, what's the outcome of HIT? And for me, HIT is very simple. It's me showing up wholly and fully for the person in front of me with no other intention besides adding value. No preconceived notions, no, you know, no cookie cutter solutions, and no, I'm going to wait till you're done so I can talk. None of that. I'm literally there for you 100% with no intention besides adding value. So we've turned that into a sort of workshop called creating space. So you create the space around you that's completely neutral except for the positivity of your adding value. People step into that and suddenly they realize their own greatness. And once we put this down on paper, this has turned even my, my personal consulting, which my one-on-one consulting, which I do online, which is um, sort of higher end, uh, it's even changed that because now I can teach my clients to step into that space and we come up with ideas for their businesses that you cannot imagine. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, we could only do this only because we created space and allowed each other to step into that. And that creates that third entity called the mastermind or the, yeah, the mastermind. That's where that mm-hmm. word comes from. It comes from two minds coming together, creating the third entity, the mastermind. And that's the magic of hit right there. And I can guarantee you, once you learn how to create space, invest in, 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 in relational capital, understand our meaning of quality of life and life enterprise. Um, and then you learn how to create space. Your life is almost effortless. And I don't want to sound cheesy, but here I am, an American, 52 years old, living in Hungary in a village of 2,000 people in the middle of nowhere, beautiful house, two kids, amazing wife. Yeah. And I earn more than most people earn. Hmm. And I do it from here. How? Because I attract people. People pay to come here to spend time with me. They pay to stay, come here for a week. To, I, I call it coaching by osmosis. Hmm. We'll help them grow their business, help them grow themselves. We'll, try, we'll go to Austria. We'll travel a little bit, go to the lake. And I visit my clients. I have clients all over here. Wow. Visit okay. my clients. Yeah, but it's still video. But they know me because, you know, sometimes I'll go to Austria and I'll visit four or five of them. But yeah. I'll bring one of my clients with me who come to visit. And I'll let them create space with all three of us. And we come up with new ideas. Because you see, every new mind that steps into the mastermind, is more of a create creativity boost for the entire situation. So it's not a joke when I, when I say that hit is the basis, what took me from being a guy who, you know, was always a winner, but never knew where it went afterwards. Like never, like I couldn't figure out what was going to happen later. Well now, because I know who I am and I know my purpose, I don't have to worry about where I'm going. Cause I know I'm going to get there. Yeah. I just know that if I do what I do the way I do it, according to hit, you know, with all the core principles that we have, that I'm going to get there anyway, and that I'm going in the, in the proper path. And that just, it makes your life so effortless. You don't worry about tomorrow, ever. Yeah. Never worry about tomorrow, <laughs> ever. Can you imagine? It's, oh, it's, it, it's incredible, yeah. So really, HIT is, is a way to create a, a space, and not necessarily a safe space, but a welcoming no. <laughs> space where, where you can step into and really just from the ground up share ideas in in a welcoming fashion. So, you know, creating that mastermind, creating that new type of collaboration in a space where you're welcome to do so. Creating space comes after hit. So um, like, for instance, honesty begins internally and then it moves its way outward into the external world. And honesty, of course, is vital to growth. Without honesty, you'll, you'll, you'll never grow. Mm-hmm. And when we're dishonest, we literally put blinders on and only see what we want to see. And, you know, honesty is not, not only expressing what you say, but with your actions as well. I mean, that's why precise language is very important. And when we lie, our body gets used to it. Our mind gets used to it. So we end up telling ourselves that our lies are truths. And you'll never get to where you want to go when you're that way. And I don't mean people lie on purpose. They do little things to protect other people, protect themselves. And next thing you know, that's all you do is lie. And it's just, you know, people lie to, to, to avoid suffering, to get what they want, uh, you know, we want others to think good of us or well of us, and they want to protect other people's feelings and stuff. I get it. But being honest, we can really get to the core of the issue and solve them permanently. You're not solving the symptom, but rather the root cause. And only then will you be able to truly live authentically and get what you want in life. There's that word authenticity. The authenticity comes from knowing who you are, knowing your purpose, and having that certainty. Because then you don't bow to anybody. No one can have any garbage on you. No one can have any dirt on you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the internet every day, every day, right? So I just did my 300th episode of my morning purge, my daily purge today. Wow. That's where I get up and I, you know, I do whatever I do and I go outside and just purge. Yeah. 
what's on my mind. And um, no one, they can say whatever they want, but everything about me, I've already said it, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm just honest, transparent, and there it is. So I'm free. You, you understand me? Yeah. I'm free as a man, as a human being, as a person, as a spiritual being, or whatever it is you want to call me. And that attracts the most amazing people into my life. My partner, Lane Ballone, um, he's 31 years old. I'm 52. Mm-hmm. This guy, he's a special forces, Green Beret um, veteran, did 12 years in the military. The, the, the most spiritual guy you'll ever meet that is no nonsense, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. right? So, you know, high performance mindset, that whole, that whole special forces lingo, that whole thing goes. But when you look at him, you never know he's a, you know, he could take you out 15 different ways before you even look, you know. Yeah. Um, and he's just that cool alpha confidence, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's so the, the, the hit attracted him to me. He loved the hit principles. He loved, he, he just came to one of our retreats in Peru. We have a retreat every year in Peru. We work with um, um, sacred medicine, plant medicine, okay. ayahuasca and San Pedro. We, we work with industry leaders, different industries, different leaders uh, in finding their identity, purpose, and certainty. Got so it. yeah, it's a, it's a way to attract amazing things to your life. I mean, look, I, I, I've I've done the most ridiculous things. I worked for Mick Jagger. I worked for Olivia Newton-John. I worked for Andrea Bocelli. Hmm. I've worked for politicians. I'm I'm a co-founder of a political movement in Germany, which is now the largest nonprofit in Germany, a political party nonprofit. Um, I've worked with world leaders, spoke at the parliaments, worked for NASDAQ, worked in NASDAQ companies, PLCs in London. I mean, it's just, and it's all because one, I knew who I was. And number two, I had that basis of, it's only me stopping me. Right? It's only me stopping me. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. I just, I just did my daily purchase today about that. People playing small. You know, how, how you, know, you get all your friends, oh, man, you're amazing. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. When you get to that point and you feel great every day because everybody's giving you accolades, you better start looking at moving yourself up a little bit. You know? Yeah. You know, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's, and that's, that's my mantra, so to say. It's just once you get too comfortable, get moving. If you're the biggest one in the room, you should find a bigger room. Exactly. Well, there's two things I do. When someone says when you're the smartest one in the room, you should change rooms. I always say when you're the smartest one in the room, elevate everybody and then change rooms. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Bring them up and then go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is where you should be. You can do it. Come on, let's go. Okay, I'll see you later. Boom. Off yeah. you go. Yeah. So can you walk us through? Because now you're doing like this consulting work. You're doing coaching. You're you're creating this new thing. Can you give us sort of like the major points that in the major steps you took from running a nightclub and then getting into security to now you've worked with all these major corporations, huge names. What, what are some of the biggest points in that time that we're, we're missing? Well, we're talking about 15 years right there. Okay. So in that time, I ran an organization from the UK uh, for uh, as a um, European operations and development manager where I had 3,500 people under me. And I set up their entire training um, for 87 locations at the time, I think we had less, can't remember, um, 87 locations in nine countries. Uh, and I ran that like tight ship. I took over a joint venture for the United States. I mean, all this stuff I'd never done before. Like I'd never done any of this stuff before. (laughs) Yeah. My, my first corporate job, I, I'll never forget it. I, you know, came home and my ex-wife was like, they're paying you how much? (laughs) You know, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, I know it's crazy. You know? And then they, (laughs) It was my first job after being self-employed. And then I got my taxes taken away. I'm like, what? Like, what happened? It's yeah. like 50% taxes in Germany. Hmm. So, um, and then, so I, I kept bouncing around. I got headhunted by another company and they quadrupled my pay. Hmm. Now you got to realize I got out of the army. I was 27 by the year, by the, by the age of 32, I was making three, 400 K a year. It was no experience, right? Um, running a company in all of Europe and a joint venture in America. Hmm. And I'm sitting there going, Okay, what the hell? How are they going to find out this is not me? You know, I mean, like, you know, yeah. And I'll never forget sitting in the office in um, in Chicago with the CEO beside me, the, the, the director director of operations beside me there, and all this stuff. And every day, I'd you come into the office, and I'd have a stack stack of tickets on my desk, like Oprah Winfrey, the Sox, the Cubs, mm-hmm. you know, talk shows, whatever, and you know, all these tickets. And we go to lunch, and the CEO would pay like three or four grand just for lunch, and we never worked. I was like, man, every day I'm like, oh man, they're going to come in. I'm like looking at their office. They're playing guitar and, and singing. And I'm like, I thought I was the only one not working, but nobody was working. It was incredible. And I couldn't do it. I yeah. couldn't do it. It was, it was just, I felt like an imposter. 
But when I left that space and I went back to um, smaller companies, that experience made me invaluable to small companies. I mean, I rocked the smaller companies. When I mean smaller, I mean, you know, regional companies, not like yeah. one-offs or whatever. And so that, that's where I really honed it. And then I, I got into, when I got my MBA in the UK um, back in 2002 to five, I skipped a year because my book came out, right? Mm-hmm. And I just did a year on the road. When I did that, um, I took an American company as my project and brought them to Germany and founded their, their, their corporate culture into Germany. So I, I studied management of change. Hmm. And uh, that, that was really successful. They're actually still there this, to, to this day. They're one of the market leaders. Um, wow. And these are all things that I, <laughs> I have no idea. I just <laughs> head first, man. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, I want to do that. You know, it's like when I remember when I, when I went to my business school, uh, I, I applied to Bradford University School of Business Management, which is one of 29 business schools out of 10,000 uh, 10, in the world that is triple accredited. That means mm-hmm. I can go anywhere in the world and it's, and it's, it's accredited. It's valid. Right? Okay. Yeah, it's valid. And they're like, nope, you're not getting in. I'm like, right. you know, cause I don't have a, I don't have a full bachelor's. I have just like enough credits and that kind of stuff, but I don't have a bachelor's. Okay. And they're like, how do you expect to get in? I said, please let me have a personal audience. So I flew to the UK, went in there and after 15 minutes, I'd be like, we would be glad to have you, hmm. you know? And it's just because of the experience that I had. And I, I said, why did you say no? And they said, it wasn't because of your college. It's because we didn't believe your, your resume. How did you get all these jobs when you don't have any experience? And I said, just like I'm getting into this school right now. Yeah. And they were like, holy shit. This is how. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, wow. And I got to tell you, um, that's the hardest part about doing online business is taking that personal sort of energy and the presence that that you can build in yourself and getting it across the screen. That's one of the hardest challenges I've had. I've been online for two years now. And it's been one of the biggest challenges. But, you know, to get back to your question... Um, that was the experience that I had to then move forward. And I opened up a bunch of my own companies and, you know, I had, you know, like I said, cocktail bars and stuff. We had, I had joint ventures, other health clubs, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I did okay. I did pretty good, but as it does, you know, 2008, uh, 2007, um, the market crash, mm-hmm. my twin brother had a mortgage charter okay. in America and I was sort of with him and we were doing movies. So we were, we were out producing films in Hollywood and New York. So I'd fly and I did the co-production coordination in Germany because they had the best tax advantages at the time. So I'd fly to New York, then to LA back and forth. We're like going to dinner and meeting Robert De Niro. And, and you know, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And it's because one of our clients, uh, one of the mortgage clients said, um, Hey, do you guys ever produce films? We're like, what? We don't know how to shoot a film. Like, no production. That means you just invest in them and get money back. And we're like, no, can you help us out? We're like, sure. So we went to a meeting and like 20 minutes later, we had a deal for 35 million. And the guy's like, oh, how did you do that? And we're like, well, we leveraged this against that. And they're like, no one does that. So like a couple of days later in the New York Times, there was an article about us, hmm. a new way to finance films. Interesting. And it's funny because we didn't know there was a new way. It's just the way we'd have done it as a, as a mortgage, right? Yeah. No one ever thought of that. So we were big time, you know, like, wow, people waiting in line to see us and stuff. Then the market crashed, 2007. Lost everything, literally almost overnight. And because I was living from that life and I didn't have anything in Germany at the time, I was just sort of chilling because uh, I was never there. I lost everything too. Hmm. But I was in Berlin and I was homeless. <laughs> so I, I literally lost, I was renting my own apartment out to somebody else. Wow. And I was allowed to stay there on weekends sometimes on my sofa when he went to his girlfriend's place. Hmm. So it was pretty, it was pretty rough. Um, that happened within about a two or three week period, if I remember correctly. And that's when I went back to the uh, club scene. Hmm. And I decided to take my my best selling MBA wearing corporate identity guy and go back to the clubs to the front door and be what they call a zelecteur. So a zelecteur is someone who stands there in a suit and tie and is eloquent and talks to everybody and welcomes them and hello, like the entertainer. Yeah. You have the big thugs behind me, the doormen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, I'm six four, you know, two forty, <laughs> so I'm not small, but you know, these guys are boxers and you know these guys, you know, so. Um, yeah, I went, I went back into that life. And what happened was, again, they're like, what? Someone from the newspaper is like, well, aren't you Stephen Kuhn, that author? I'm like, yeah, what are you doing on the door? What are you doing? Yeah. Like, aren't you going to have an MBA? Da, 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 da. Like, like going through all this stuff. I'm like, we need to do an article. So then the TV came and newspapers came. And, you know, that's like a big deal. And which made the club explode. Yeah, yeah, which made the club explode. And it was like, and, and that's because of one thing. I wasn't embarrassed to stand on the door. Right? I accepted where I was. I faced myself at that very moment and everyone around me that very moment. 
That's, this is where I am. This is what I'm dealing with. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and I did that better than anybody else. I can stand in my vulnerability like it's a swimming pool. I have no problem with that. That's why every meeting I go to, almost every meeting I go to when it comes to competition, trying to win a bid or something, which I typically don't get into, they can come with their polished, you know, suitcase and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. PowerPoint presentations. I'm just sitting there watching them, waiting until they're done because all that's on the outside. They had nothing on the inside. Mm -hmm. I just stand there, wait till they're done and close the deal. And that all comes from that inner power, knowing that I've been down, I've been up, I've been across and left and right up, you know, everywhere. And, and I was always that happens. same person. It was always that same person. People write me on the internet. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe you answered me. I'm like, why wouldn't I? Yeah. You know? So it's, uh, it's, it was a, a rough one, but it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> so shortly after that, I had a, I picked up a girlfriend because I was homeless and I needed somewhere to live. So I guess that was my fault. And it was toxic. She was horrible. Uh, treated me like dirt. Made me feel like I was worse than I, worse off than I was. Um, and she had me in tears almost every single day. This was in 2008. And uh, um, one day I just had enough. And, uh, you know, she was freaking out in the car and calling me all kinds of names and stuff. And I just, just said, get out, you know. And as she got out, I hit the, hit the gas. And I literally drove like 150 feet and there was a speed trap. Hmm. German police, like 10 German police or eight or whatever it was. Yeah. And I'm bawling, I'm crying. I'm, I'm this big dude, you know, crying. And they pull me out. They're like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, it's not coming out of my <laughs> nose, you know? And, yeah. And uh, she comes walking up because it was only 150 feet. And she's like, he's a, he's a war criminal. He's he killed people. Like what? Where'd this come from? Like just out of the blue, you know? And I'm freaking out. So I, I looked at the girls, the, the policeman beside me, behind me, around me, and I grabbed the gun of the police officer beside me, and I wanted to shoot myself. Hmm. And she's like, do it, do it. You know, my girlfriend. So they tackled her. This woman in front of me grabbed my hand and pushed it down and spun around in front of me and said, I know you. You don't want to do this. I was like, well, you know me? Like, it just shocked me. So a diffuse situation. I lost my license and my car uh, for a good long time. Uh, I went home or I went to my, my buddy's apartment, my apartment, his apartment. <laughs> he wasn't home. I went in the closet in the back part of the closet. I had all my stuff and I pulled out my uniform, hung it up in the wall. Uh, took out a picture of myself. I had in a box in the uniform. I put it there, I pulled out a K bar, which is a Marine bayonet. And I put it to my throat. And I was just going to just finish myself off. I was so sick of it. And at that moment, a knock on the door. I was like, God, I can't even kill myself. You know, I was like, Jesus. So I went to the door, I'm like, what? And I had this knife in my hand, like, what? And it was that police officer hmm. that had spun around and said, I know you. I was like, what are you doing? She goes, can I come in? I'm like, yeah. And she took my hand, put the knife down, and led me into my own living room. Hmm. And she said something along the lines of, look, I know who you are. It was one of your readings. I heard you read your book, and this is not who you are. You're going to have an amazing life. You're going to have a wife and kids. You're going you're to spread love across this whole world. And I was in shock sitting in my own living room and she got up and we did the old German bussy bussy and one on each cheek, you know, kind of thing. And she walked out and closed the door and I'm sitting there going, did that just happen? And I opened the door and she was gone, of course. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I don't know if it was real or if it was like divine intervention to save my ass or what, I don't know what it was, Yeah. but I knew that I wasn't going to make it either way. So I called a buddy of mine in Austria, Michael. And I said, look, Michael, if you don't come and get me, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I know it. So he sent a plane ticket, and the next morning I flew out to Austria. He picked me up and dumped me in a monastery of Benedictine monks in the middle of Austria. Hmm. And I spent a good uh, six, eight months there and just really found out who I was this time. Like, no more bullshit going back into the world, trying it again, starting over, none of that stuff. Until I know who I am, 100%, and what my strengths and weaknesses are and why I'm on this freaking planet, I am not leaving this monastery. I didn't pay bills, didn't tell anybody where I was, nothing. I just yeah. didn't care. And uh, when I came out, it just everything changed. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. Like I wasn't going to jail and people weren't hounding me for bills. And I said, look, I can't pay. I'll pay you $5 a month, whatever. I'm like, okay. It was just, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, um, when I went back to Berlin, I was there for about another year, maybe a half a year. And then I got called back from a corporation they said hey we have a job for you and i'm like i don't want to work for you guys ever again you know it's just too much and they said well, it's just a three-month contract in budapest and something went go 
I was like, mm-hmm. my intuition said, you got to go to Budapest. So I'm like, okay, it's three months. Can't be that bad. You know, give me this much. And they're like, okay. Plus you get a bonus if you do this now. I'm like, okay. So I go to Budapest completely knowing who I am. 100% free of any kind of pressure from the outside world. And I walk into the door of this business that I'm taking over. And the first person I see is a woman that I ended up marrying. Hmm. Is now my wife. We have two kids. That was 10 years ago. Wow. So that showed me one thing. When you're in alignment with who you are and you're living according to hit, like I explained, good things happen. You walk into your life every single day. You walk into your life every single day. It's just... It's unfathomable to me that people struggle so hard now that I know this. And the one thing about HIT, relational capital, creating space, these are not things that I made up. These are all things that I, after living my life, I went back and studied. How did I get through that time? What happened to me? What did I do to have that change? And then I started giving them names. That's where all these acronyms come from. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it isn't something I just made up. I actually went through my whole life, told stories. Talked about them. I'm like, when was the moment that hit actually hit me? When was the moment that I created space for the first time? When was the moment that I knew that investing in relational capital actually brings a return every single time? Hmm. And I can or it every single time, every single moment, every single time. It's amazing. Hmm. And so that, that, that's why we talk about authenticity because they're, they're proprietary, what we talk about. No one does what we do. Lane and I, no one does what we do because it's mine. It's his. It's our life. Yeah. And so that's what the Humble Alpha is all about. So now that we're, we've kind of seen the full picture and, and you've walked us through a lot of different points, um, let's kind of pivot into the second part of the show, which is our quick hits. Uh, and so first and foremost, what are some of the key takeaways from your career and your, your projects so far? No one has your best interest at heart except for you. Nobody. It just, it's just not possible. Um, the one biggest mistake that I ever made is I'd be really excited about something. And I always wanted a partner to share the, the joy, the love the whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was always my mistake because until I'm successful myself, I'm counting on this person to help me get successful and they won't because they're counting on you to help them make successful Yeah, to make them successful. So that was my, my, my biggest takeaway from all the partners that I had, which were great people, but we were always more self-interested than group interested. It always starts out great. You know, that's, that's easy. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say that's one of my biggest takeaways. Also, like I said, no one else cares for you as much as you care for you. Nobody, you don't expect it. No expectations. man. you know, when you go into a room, when you do, when you do things, when you want to work, you know, whatever you do, just go in there with no expectations and give the best that you have, period. And create that space, man. Take over that room. Presence. You walk into a room. When you, when you create space, you can walk into a room with hundred people in there. Don't have to say a word. People are going to look at you. This is also what we teach in the Humble Alpha. It's just mm-hmm. incredible. And presence of knowing who you are is so powerful. Like when I was in a room in, in a hotel one time in Berlin, Bill Clinton walked in the room. I didn't know he was, I didn't even know he was there. I walked in the room and I felt this thing like, whoa, geez, who just walked in? There he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's and Bill Clinton standing there. <laughs> yeah. And I walked in and I walked up to him. Hey, William Jefferson Clinton, how you doing? Hmm. And he's like, hey, how are you? So yeah. what I did there was I used his full name. I didn't say President Clinton, Mr. Clinton, Bill, Slick Willie, I didn't say none of that stuff. I use his whole name. Same thing with Mick Jagger. Hey, Mick Jagger. Or hey, Olivia Newton-John. Or hey, Andrea Bocelli. Got to use your whole name because no one does that. Yeah. Be unique. You know, that kind of thing. Got it. Awesome. Now, what is the one piece of advice that you would give your 20-year-old self? This is going to be an interesting one for you. Yeah, you know, I... I... I think if I look back and if I had changed anything, I wouldn't be where I am today. But one thing I would have to say... I think that really matters is that trust your intuition 100%. Even in the moment where you think there's no way this could be the way I'm supposed to be going, that you have to trust your intuition. Your intuition is the only real truth. Hmm. Literally, the only real truth out there is your intuition. Got it. Now, what has been one book or resource that has helped you along your way? So many, but one that I, I suggest to every single client I have is by Michael Neal. Okay. It's called the inside out revolution. Hmm. You know, we talk about the working from the inside out all the time. And if you want to have a balanced life, if you're not working on the inside, the outside doesn't really matter. It's like taking taking a suit off every day. The inside out revolution by Michael Neal. And it's fantastic because it's, if you get the audio book, you listen to it for three and a half hours and you're like deprogrammed. Hmm. It's incredible. You don't, you don't have to remember anything. It just does it for you. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Now, 
where, Stephen, can, can people learn more about you and your story? Fantastic. Um, um, you know, qolenterprises.com, quality of life, qolenterprises.com, or stephen-kuhn.com, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Instagram, awesome. I'm not big on, but Facebook, I do a live every day. Okay. Like and uh, yeah, you can find me there. Awesome. Well, Stephen Kuhn, decorated military veteran, uh, speaker, author, and consultant, and proprietor, founder of HIT. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. It was my true pleasure. And thanks for letting me dig deep. You know, I, it's, it's not too often that people let, let, let you flee for free flow like that. So yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. And that does it for our show with Stephen Kuhn. One portion of Stephen's story that really sticks out is the fact that you have to trust your intuition. When you know who you are and, and clarify that to yourself, then immediately you know how you feel about certain things. And we call that intuition, right? You have that gut feeling and it can be helpful to dive into what's causing that gut feeling and why you're responding the way you are. But in a lot of ways, you have to just trust your intuition and trust your judgment. And this is something that kind of can go either way. And this is debated a lot, whether you need to trust your intuition or whether you need to just rationalize through everything. And Stephen advocates for trusting your, your intuition because ultimately that is one of the truest expressions of your feelings. Stephen also shared this idea that when you know who you are, you walk into your life every day. And that's actually really, really insightful because a lot of times you get out from the universe what you put into it. So if no one knows that you're interested in real estate or that you're interested in becoming a music producer, you're never going to be able to do that unless you share that interest with someone and allow the universe to work in your favor. Maybe someone has the right friend or has someone that can get you uh, into the proper position to learn more about your interests, but that doesn't happen unless you're very clear about who you are with yourself and what you actually want. And once you do that, Stephen says, essentially, your life just comes to you. That does it for this week's show. From Taste for Tenacity, show number 33, this is Ben Trella. Thanks for listening.